You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! I don't think most people understand just how quickly machine intelligence is advancing. It's much faster than almost anyone realizes, even within Silicon Valley. And certainly outside Silicon Valley, people really have no idea. Uh, robots are now becoming what the industry calls cobots. They are collaborative robots. So if you think of a factory in the, in, in, in the last two decades, the robot was in a place and the humans were in a completely separate place with a wall. We see that this is going to change in the next five years. North American companies are onboarding robot workers at a faster than ever pace. According to the Association of Advancing Automation, companies ordered a record setting 12,305 machines in the second quarter of 2022. That's 25% more than the same period a year ago. The pandemic um, definitely highlighted some areas that uh, shortages in resources needed to be automated. Um, and customers had to automate uh, just due to the fact that uh, people weren't coming back to the workplace. Talking about AI, I, I realized like, oh, well, this is a genie that once it's out of the bottle, you're never getting it back in. That's true. There was a video that you tweeted about one of those Boston Dynamic robots. And yeah. you're like, in the future, it'll be moving so fast you can't see it without a strobe light. Yeah. You could probably do that right now. And no one's really uh, paying attention too much other than people like you or people that are really obsessed with technology. All these things are happening and these robots. Hey, welcome back to Labor Relations Radio. So if you couldn't tell, that was a random montage of clips, including a couple featuring Elon Musk talking about artificial intelligence and robots. And we put that together to open the door to today's topic and our guest. As you probably know, the American workplace has changed and it is changing currently and it's about to change even faster in the next five to ten years and right now too few people are paying attention to it as a result if america's leaders at the local state and federal level don't shift their focus and act fairly soon there are going to be a lot of people left behind that brings us to today's guest Michael Latito is a shareholder with the law firm Littler Mendelssohn and is one of the premier labor attorneys in the nation and, as importantly, one of the nation's thought leaders on workplace policy. And as such, he's also co-chair of the Littler's Workplace Policy Institute. Back in March, Michael came on to Labor Relations Radio, and while we spoke mostly about labor policy and the various things going on with the National Labor Relations Board, we touched on some of the broader topics of what's going on in the American workplace and what he's been doing about it. Well, I wanted to come back to that conversation when we have more time. So earlier today, I had the chance to talk to Michael, and he came back on Labor Relations Radio, and we talked about the Emma Coalition. Now, the Emma Coalition is a project that Michael co-founded and named in honor of his granddaughter, and it's dedicated to educating the employer community and policymakers about the issues surrounding TIDE, which stands for Technology-Induced Displacement of employees. And the hope is that by maximizing the economic and social benefits of Tide for America's companies and workers while minimizing its disruptive costs for workers and companies, it will be less disastrous for America's workers or workplace. So the Emma Coalition, in cooperation with government and corporate entities, examines what skills the American workforce will need down the road and makes sure America and its people will remain competitive in the years to come. Now, on its website, the Emma Coalition asks a fundamental question. With the fast-paced arrival of innovative and transformative technologies, will workers whose jobs are most likely to be disrupted have the skills and training required for the new jobs being created. And unfortunately right now, with attention being diverted to other issues like politics and the pandemic and other things, the picture seems a little bit dismal. Uh, 
So here's Michael Letito on the Emma Coalition and the transformative things that are happening to our workforce. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, Michael Letito, welcome back to Labor Relations Radio. How are you this morning? I'm good. How are you, Peter? Good. So last time we uh, had you on, which is some months ago, we talked a lot about the uh, current status of labor law, the National Labor Relations Board and all that. And we only touched a little bit upon the Emma Coalition. Um, and it was a fascinating topic, but we we're running up against the, the clock. And I wanted to come back to that because it's a pretty important issue that I don't think a lot of people are really tracking on. And so do you mind sharing what the Emma Coalition is and why it's important? Well, in Washington, everybody has a, uh, a fancy name like Emma, um, and everybody wants to know what it stands for. Um, Emma is my uh, oldest granddaughter's name. Uh, and the reason why we named the coalition um, after a real-life person is because all of the McKinsey studies and what have you with respect to workforce transformation, I thought were a little bit too um, difficult to apply for people to really understand they were too abstract. And so I wanted to put a real-life person. And I think we all share um, a view that we want um, the country and the opportunities for our children and our grandchildren to be better than those that we had. And so by trying to focus in on Emma, a symbol for all of the children of the world, and frankly, for all of the workers of the world, uh, we thought that that might uh, galvanize a little bit more interest and make this a little bit more personal. Uh, because, you know, as the book Deaths of Despair demonstrate, there are a hell of a lot of people that have been left behind since the 70s. Um, and, you know, that's something that has to be addressed too. So that may be a, a longer answer than you wanted, but that's what Emma is. And um, Emma is the most important person in the world for me. And, um, you know, my story that I think perhaps you've heard um, is as an only adopted child. By the way, I just uh, recently found my birth mother um, and had a long talk with her um, hmm. in the graveyard. Um, I've been trying to make the world a better place and justify my existence, the sacrifice that my two mothers have made uh, for me to even be here, make the world a better place. Um, and I'd like um, for the world to be a better place for Emma uh, than the one I entered into and the one that I'm going to leave when I take the long dirt nap. Um, and I'm running out of time um, and I'm failing. So let me ask you, the um, the whole purpose of Emma, well, I shouldn't say the whole purpose, but a large portion of the purpose of Emma is to really alert people to the transition that is taking place or about to take place within the workplace, right? Yeah, and, and I think, um, and, you know, Emma's been going for, uh, for six years, um, and I've had a very, very effective opportunity to talk to myself um, in a closet about what it is that we're trying to do because we have not been able to get a lot of people's attention. Um, you know, some people patted me on the head and, you know, what are you doing and da 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 da, da. Um, But that is beginning to change, and I think fairly shortly, um, especially depending upon what happens at the midterm, <coughs> we may rebrand them a little bit and give her a little bit of a shot. Um, but, yeah, it was designed to be a policy-focused effort to get people to understand that we're in the midst of a revolutionary uh, historic workforce transformation. Um, and we initially called that TIDE, Technologically Induced Displacement of Employees. Um, and we saw that coming. Um, and in fact, it's taking place around this and has been taking place for some period of time, especially in our manufacturing industries, um, which has now gotten accelerated because we've moved from TIDE to VI, virus-induced displacement of employees. Um, and what's actually happened is we thought that um, the, the robots, et cetera, would be displacing existing employees. And I know we create more jobs from that. That's a whole discussion that we can have. But what's actually taking place is VI. The virus-induced displacement of employees has been profound. And even though the job numbers yesterday showed that we've only got 10 million um, open jobs and we're down about a million, we still have only about half as many people looking to fill them. So what's happening is, you know, you probably saw the article yesterday about uh, the pizza robots. Um, right. uh, you probably saw, you know, the headline 
a couple of weeks ago in the Wall Street Journal about China um, uh, buying um, as many robots for their manufacturing industries um, uh, last year as the rest of the entire world combined. You see companies um, talking about uh, moving to kiosks in California as a result of the FAST Act. And so you need a robot because there's no way in the world you can comply with respect to the unit labor costs that you're going to be confronted with. So as a result of what's been happening more recently in this workforce transformation, truly coming out of uh, COVID, uh, people are becoming much more aware um, that there are uh, transformations taking place before their very eyes. I did a, a quick cost analysis based on something on the, uh, I think it was the, um, one of the fast food chains out in California is looking at replacing a French fry maker with a robot, essentially. So it's uh, maybe Jack in the Box. The company that's, that is selling them slash renting them is, I, I want to say, and don't hold me these numbers, is $5,000 to install $3,500 a month. And so I just did it. If you did a 11, I'm sorry, 7 to 11 shift for that robot, it worked out to like $7.30 an hour. Versus, and no overtime, no benefits, no, um, no threat of unionization, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, as far as I know, robots do not get sexually harassed um, right. um, or perhaps do any sexual harassment themselves um, or itself. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the other thing is if you buy a robot, you've got a capital investment and you depreciate it. Um, if you've got an employee, you have an expense. I mean, just think about our language. We say people are most important assets and we carry them on the balance sheet as an expense. You go out and buy a robot, that's capital investment. Right. So, so let's break this down a little bit. What we're really talking about is a coming, to use your term, tide, if you will, of essentially automation and or robots or artificial intelligence taking the place of workers within the workplace. And it's coming fairly quickly. Well, what's happening as a result of VI is that they are not necessarily, these, I'll call them devices, are not necessarily taking the place of people, but since businesses can't get people, they're using them as an alternative to the people. Um, that so, is also starting to take place. So that's more of a either a demographic shift or labor participation, voluntary labor participation um, shift, people not right. wanting to come right. back to work. Right, right. The labor participation is down. Um, and... You know, not only that, our population is way down. Uh, we're not producing kids. And our immigration system, um, headline is broken. Right. Um, so um, we don't have as many immigrants in the country right now that are doing jobs. So as a result, we have a workforce that is completely broken. Um, and when you see the modest sum of money in the CHIPS Act um, that was uh, set aside for the development of skills, um, you can see that we don't have any kind of a national plan. Um, and, you know, you've been seeing the headlines about, you know, the chip companies making a huge investment in upstate New York, uh, making a huge investment in Ohio. Uh, my question is, that's great. Where are you getting the people from? we got all of these high-end jobs that are going to be offered. Where do we get the people from? Um, because I'm telling you, we don't have the knowledge of skills that are needed and skills that are going away. We have legislation that we've written, depending upon the midterms, introduced uh, that will try to get the Department of Labor um, and perhaps the Commerce Department to give us better knowledge of skills that are needed and skills going away. Then what you do is you take WIOA, um, which has to be reauthorized next year, and you begin to make changes with respect to WIOA and the worker boards in the states, and you make sure that they're training people for the skills that are needed given not only the changes with respect to what's happening with the businesses in those areas, but also the other demographics that are taking place. And you begin to have a national plan. Um, and this, I think, is an imperative which is a, as important as climate or anything else. Um, we've been through workforce revolutions before, and at the end, we always come out stronger. I don't argue that point. But going from here to there, 
a lot of people have a hell of a lot of pain. And we have to change other things within our society. We got to get away from the fact that everybody's got to go to college. Not everybody has to go to college. Most people shouldn't go to college. I don't know, shouldn't. Um, but we have left behind um, individuals in this Death of Despair book that I talked about from uh, uh, 2020 uh, by two Princeton uh, noted economists um, is absolutely petrified. Um, everybody should read Deaths of Despair. Um, we've left half of our population behind. Um, our opioid abuse, um, even without the latest problems with the new crap that's going in in order to destroy people's lives, the alcoholism, the suicide rates for individuals without a college education since the 70s have skyrocketed. We have a country where our length of life is decreasing, decreasing. These people are angry. We have left them behind. You don't just acquire skills because you need to. You've got to instill a lifelong learning a commitment, and you've got to be able to tell them what skills to develop. And you've got to give them career ladders, and you've got to help them. And you've got to make sure that there's a plan to do it. And it's got to be integrated, and people have to talk about it. Because if we don't do this, the 21st is going to be China's century. And that is not acceptable to me. So we have, there's a lot of um, issues to unpack with that. And so let's kind of go through this somewhat sequentially as you hit it. So we have a declining workforce. Um, and this has been predicted for as long as I've been in the business world after leaving the union movement. But it was, you know, we saw it in the when I was in the union 30 plus years ago that um, the baby boomers are going to age out and there's not enough of the following gen- generations that are having kids, as you mentioned. So, <clears throat> excuse me, the problem that has been going on for as long as I can remember is this whole immigration issue that you touched on. If the the current generations are not having enough kids, that means we need to import more labor. But it's become such a political ping pong ball and, you know, left and right don't want to don't want to come up with a solution. I saw a maybe solution back in 2007 at the Gang of Eight and everybody got, you know, who's part of that Gang of Eight just got destroyed, both from Correct. the right and the left. Yeah, and I, I, Brandy Johnson at that time was the you know, senior vice president, whatever side it was at the chamber, you know, worked very, very hard on that with, uh, um, uh, with Trump, good God rest his soul. Um, and they were very close um, in, in making these changes. But you just cannot get across the finish line because the nature of our politics, which, of course, since 2007 have only gotten worse. Um, so you start looking for solutions, um, and it becomes extraordinarily difficult. Yeah, and that it's, um, and I think part of this is on the Republican side, and, you know, because it's an issue of, you know, secure the borders, secure the borders. And I've always been of the opinion, you know, have a, have a system where people can come in, you know, maybe a gate system if you're going to build a wall and widen it or close it as you need. But, you know, if we don't have the employees in the workforce, we're going to have wage inflation, which we're seeing now, Um, you know, just the whole slew of issues. So then if assuming that this ping pong ball is not going to get settled for a little while, you know, then it goes to we've had a bunch of people leaving the workforce post-COVID, a lot of them baby boomers who just said, you know what, I'm close to retirement. I don't need to work. Right. And then the issue you touched on with, you know, we're sending all these kids to school, to college, when a lot of them don't need to go to college. There's plenty of skills that can be developed without college. Absolutely. I'm starting to see a little bit more um, pushback against the college, you know, go directly to high school to college. There's some, you know, more talk about trade schools and stuff like that. So at least it sounds like that's loosening up. It's it's starting to loosen up. And one of the things that we did is we invested in um, a book that I think I've sent to you, uh, this workforce, the throttle on American growth. The 50-state scan of business efforts to address the national workforce challenge. And this is put out by the National Association of State Chambers. That's different than the U.S. Chamber, although they're obviously related. Um, But almost every state has a chamber and there's an association of them. And we work with that association, whoever. Um, And uh, 
along with Ted Abernathy, an economist, uh, we studied all 50 states uh, through the chambers. And we issued this report uh, right around Labor Day um, and talked about it in our, in our Labor Day report. Um, and this 50-pager um, has a page for every single state um, and what it is that they're doing um, or not doing, um, along with best practices, uh, which I can talk about, and federal legislative priorities. So for the first time, we have a blueprint. Um, and it's exciting to me because uh, what we're discussing uh, with the state chamber uh, executives is create um, a steering committee of those states, five, four, five, six of them, that really get this. Um, you know, states like Mississippi, believe it or not, they're, they're, they're doing great in this whole uh, workforce development. They had no choice. Um, Florida is fabulous in this. Uh, Tennessee does a great job. And get that steering committee um, and start to publicize more the kinds of things that they're doing. Um, and I had a call yesterday, I won't mention the state, uh, from their state chamber um, asking us to help them. Um, they're quite low on the scale in the country with respect to workforce preparation. And I always believed uh, that this is going to be a bottom-up effort um, because you know, the federal government, top-down, we can get some traction, you know, from um, uh, Ed and Labor, Ed and Workforce, whatever it's going to be called, um, if the Republicans win um, and, and make some changes. But it's the states and the governors um, and the businesses that are coming to the conclusion, um, and this is so clear, from this report. Number one issue um, in every single state in the country um, was not inflation, although obviously that was close, but inflation is somewhat episodic. Um, you know, we'll go through the pain and you know, hopefully we'll get out of it. But it's workforce. They do not have people. And when they have people, they do not have skills. And so if states are going to be successful, if they're going to be able to keep the businesses that they have and attract the businesses such as a chip plant that goes to New York or Ohio um, in order to create the high-level jobs that are going to be needed in the future and to continue to invest in lifelong learning, those states that embrace this concept are going to become extraordinarily desirable for investment. And those states that don't will not. And I think what we need is a competition between states. Because if you have a state that really embraces this and starts to get traction on these issues that we're talking about, the states immediately surrounding them are going to say, we have no choice but to do the same thing because we're losing businesses to them, and so on and so forth. And we're in the embryonic stages of that. And the phone call that I got yesterday up in the state asking them to help them do that was an indication to me, they heard me speak about this in Vegas, um, that, um, that it's, it's starting to get out there. The people are starting to say, you need to do something about this. That was very rewarding. Well, you know, I'll, I'll give you an anecdotal story. Um, this was some years ago, as you probably know, I'm down in South Carolina, and we've had a lot of investment in South Carolina from Boeing to um, Michelin up in the upstate, as well as uh, Volvo some years ago. Is, and I'm not sure where they are in terms of building their plant, but um, I'd heard the story, and I don't remember what conference it was, that that the problem here in South Carolina was that, you know, we've got all this investment coming in, but the workforce itself, just as you said, isn't ready for it. So some of these companies are taking it upon themselves to actually train them up. You know, not right. just not just your normal training, but literally, you've got to go back and teach them life skills and you know, correct how to hold a wrench and all that sort of stuff. Correct. And I think they're doing up. it. How, how to take a shower? How to work with the team? Right. Um, you know, because they're so busy working on their um, devices, uh, playing games, they don't even know how to talk to people. Um, so this is the reality that are confronting companies today. And the question that the society really needs to ask is: Should it be an entire burden on those companies to make those types of investments. 
Um, is this more of a partnership uh, between the companies um, and the government, the government at all levels, as well as our educational institutions? Because the educational institutions need to change as well. Um, you know, when I was growing up in New York, you know, many years ago, when you got to um, got into high school, everybody took the same courses for the first two years. And then a decision was made as to whether or not you're going to go more the college route or more of a trade route. Um, so I went the college route. It's worked out um, extremely well for me. Uh, my cousin um, became an auto mechanic. And so for the mm -hmm. last two years of high school, he was in this auto mechanic program. And for the last, I think, two semesters of the senior year, he was actually working at a company, which he was you know, being given credit for and all that stuff. And so when he graduated, he had a job. Right. Yeah, well, so, my sons went the same route. Yeah. So, and, you know, my father used to say, there's no such thing as the dirty job, kid. Because at the end of the day, there's soap and water. Um, so, you know, we have to get away from this concept that people go to college, um, uh, create enormous debt, which the government then tries to get rid of, um, and sit, sit around, and they don't necessarily have a career path. That's not right for everybody. It doesn't work for everybody. Um, and it's not right for this country. It's not right for our workforce. So what we need to do is we need to have leadership. And I hope, I hope that this whole workforce issue becomes a major issue in the presidential campaign, which we will begin probably on November 8th, um, you know, the day after the midterms. Midterms, the 7th, the 8th, never November the 9th. Yeah. Um, and, um, and for people to start talking about this, as an imperative um, and to create this type of interest. And not only at the federal level, but also with respect to governors. Um, and again, I, I keep going back to this, but um, I, I should be a salespeople for The Economist who wrote Deaths of Despair. I read that book and I took it apart. And uh, you talk about being thoroughly depressed. I can understand why there's a lot of people in this country that are angry. We have to reach out to those individuals and we have to re-engage them and we have to give them hope. And I'm not suggesting that the only thing you do is to make sure that they have skills to get a job. This is all other sorts of things that need to be done. You know, we need to address childcare issues and we need to address a lot of other issues in order to enable people to go to work. But we need to get people back engaged. You know, my father with an eighth grade education, um, um, you know, did pretty well making 10 grand a year. That was his, that was his height um, in order to take care of me because there was always hope, not only for him, but there was hope that I was going to do better than him, and I have. But when I think about, is Emma going to do better than me? Not because I'm such a high trap, but you get the, the concept. I worry about that because for my father, it was like a gimme. He knew that even if I was a moron, that somehow I would do better than him, and it worked out. Well, that's... That, drove america yeah that the succeeding generations doing better than their parents has always been a, a drive and there is a lack of confidence you know today that the the kids today will do better than their parents and i you know we're seeing this all over the literature i think it's in part um feeding the union frenzy that's going on and it seems as though not just the work the workplace or the workforce that we're talking about is broken, but it's, there's a whole bunch of institutions out there. That's, um, they need to be rethought. Yeah. There's, it, it just continues to multiply, uh, with respect to issues. Um, but you know, in this chamber study, I'm happy. I mean, there's, there's no cost for this. I'm happy to send it out to anybody. Well, as our labor day report, which also talked about it, uh, but we found that, you know, the best practices um, is, number one, there's got to be a strategic plan. Um, without a plan, um, you know, you got nothing. And it's the old story. If you don't know where you're going, any path will take you there. So the first thing you need to do is you need to engage people. The best practices, the chamber takes the lead. They get some of the businesses, different sizes, et cetera. They get their leadership engaged, you know, at the CEO level that everybody understands this is an imperative, and they lay out a five-year plan. Um, the fellow that called me yesterday 
they got a five-year plan. One of the things he wants me to do is look at it, um, see how close it is. Then you got to have the staffing. You got to have organization. You have to have the willingness to execute. Uh, Florida, I forget the number of people that they have in the execution of their plan. It's absolutely unbelievable um, what they're investing in all of this. Um, and that takes, you know, money. Um, and you've got to make an investment. Um, you're not going to remake the American workforce for nothing. Um, and you're not going to engage planning, et cetera, for nothing. Engaging consultants and things of that nature. Um, so, you know, those are three of the highlights that we look to for best practices. Um, and, you know, roughly speaking, very roughly speaking, um, only about a third of the states, you know, have those elements. And then, you know, you also have to have advocacy um, because you need to engage with the legislature. You need to engage with the governor because some of this involves changing, you know, public policy. Um, so the, the report um, is a blueprint, and I think it's an inspirational one. Um, and for your listeners who are, you know, heads of companies, for example, um, you know, going to their legislators, going to their chamber and say, what did your page in that report look like? How is our state doing against others? How do I engage? Do you have a steering committee? Um, do you have a plan? What is the strategic plan? Um, I mean, you're talking about getting value out of your chamber. Um, if your chamber can help you remake the workforce in your state to make not only the people in your state more prosperous and less dependent on drugs and all the other crap um, and to become, you know, full of hope again, that this country is what it once was, the country of hope, um, the country of knowledge that everybody's going to do better. Um, and what, what better value could you possibly get to invest your money in that kind of an effort? Well, it seems to me that this has to be driven, as you mentioned earlier, bottom-up or local. Um, I, I would be more concerned about the federal government getting involved in it because everything they do gets screwed up somehow. Correct. But like like Charleston, West Virginia is a lot different than Charleston, South Carolina. And Correct. different problems. Right? Correct. So the the further down you can drive it into the locality or school district or the businesses at the chamber, you know, the local chambers, I would think would be more desirable. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I mean, for example, you know, school districts are different. Um, their willingness to adapt, they're willing to change. Um, you know, is, is the union going to balk at it? Um, you know, do you not have to deal with that issue? Uh, do you have a visionary um, head of education for the state? Uh, can that individual become, you know, part of the solution? Um, what do you do with your community colleges? Um, how well uh, funded are they? Um, uh, are they willing to reach out? Um, and how do we form those partnerships? Uh, what else can we do to attract the business? Um, so all of those kinds of things um, are going to be critically important. And what's going to work um, in South Carolina, um, the fundamentals will work in North Carolina. But there definitely will be differences uh, right. on the emphasis and the implementation. Um, and that's where the federal government, with one size fits all, screws up. But what the federal government could do is pass legislation and actually give us better information um, as to skills that we need and skills going away. Um, we could reauthorize Guayola uh, with respect to the local wage boards um, and give them incentives to make sure that they're training based upon those skills with respect to the funding, so we get a better ROI. They can do those kinds of things, for sure. And they can talk about the necessity of doing these things. And when they pass legislation, um, such as they did with the CHIPS Act, they could put a much broader uh, component of workforce development and training with a lot of money behind it and a strategic plan as an imperative to giving out the money. So I don't know what they do um, uh, with respect. I don't know if there's a box that says workforce development and the commitment of the company that's, you know, receiving. I think I read that in New York, the company was getting $6 billion, $6 billion, I think if I read that correctly, in incentives in order to build this complex in the Syracuse area. I sure as hell hope uh, that part of that $6 billion um, in relief um, has within it components where the company has to train, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But 
I don't think that what we're talking about here is top of line uh, because, you know, I've failed over the last six years to make this a national issue. Well, part of it is it's there, there's a lot of stuff going on, especially in the last three years, um, you know, with society being shut down that has distracted a lot of people. Because, it, you know, to some extent, this is this has nothing to do with you, but we were hearing pre-pandemic how the workforce is changing, automation is changing, artificial intelligence. Elon Musk was talking about how it's going to you know, be a big disruptor, and he was on Joe Rogan talking about it, but that you know, last two, three years, it's kind of fallen by the wayside. Yes, and- I, I, I totally understand that one has to deal with the fire of the day, with the disease of the day. Um, um, and, you know, it, I, I think the whole world is depressed um, uh, between COVID, wars, threat of nuclear arms going off, um, uh, inflation, uh, recession, uh, uh, politics that are broken, um, I think the whole world is depressed. So I totally get it. Um, but that doesn't mean we give up and that we start talking about it. As a matter of fact, we got to talk about it even more. Um, and we got to talk it from a positive way. And I think part of our politics is, ah, the country has left you behind and you have every right to be mad. Rah, 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 vote for me. I don't want to hear that. I want to hear the country hasn't done as well as we could have for you and a lot of other people this is what the country is going to start doing um and you know i i remind people of the impact that kennedy saying we're going to go to the moon had on a kid in levittown new york uh with sputnik flying around up there it was very 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 inspirational um i'm not asking us to go to the moon i'm not asking us to land on normandy all i want to do is recreate the american workforce so the 21st is the next american century and anybody and everybody out there should be saying who the hell is this guy to be talking that way and you're absolutely right i'm a big freaking nobody but i've been begging people for six years for somebody to emerge and become the leader and say that and since nobody has i'm going to keep saying so you just touched on something and I'm, I'm looking at the clock, so I want to make sure we have time to delve into this a little bit. I want to share three conversations with you. You mentioned that the whole world is depressed. I would throw in another term that it's PTSD. We have a mass PTSD going on. And I started having these discussions. In fact, I'm, I'm going to do a, a podcast episode on this um, once I kind of flesh this out a little bit more. About March or April, I had a conversation with a friend, you know, a professional friend, and I said, what's going on? And he said, well, think of it as Maslow's hierarchy of needs, although it's a little bit more complicated. He said, during, you know, during the pandemic, uh, the government pretty much took care of the physiological needs. Nobody was kicked out of their homes. We had the rent moratoriums, eviction moratoriums, and the government gave money. They had food banks, et cetera. He said, the next level up, however which was, you know, the fear or the the sense of safety and security, that was totally shattered. And nobody knew if they're going to live or die, if you're going to catch it by going outside, what was going on. And then the next level up, which is a sense of belonging, also was shattered. If your sense of belonging came from going to work, you weren't allowed to go to work. If your sense of belonging, and I'm putting words in his mouth, I've, I've had this conversation for the last six months. But if your sense of belonging was going to your, family's house you know you weren't allowed to do that during the holidays so and again he said it's more complicated than this but just kind of think of it as is the you know maslow's hierarchy of needs and then over the summer i had a conversation with somebody in healthcare um, who's a manager she's got a master's degree and i said what do you think is going on and she said well for us the pandemic was our world war ii and she said basically the first couple months Nobody knew what was going on. We didn't have enough PPE. She now was working in Manhattan during the time of the, you know, the initial rush. And she said, and then we got used to the death. And so people are traumatized and they're taking it out on the system, being being whoever the system is, right? And then more recently, I shared those two conversations with another friend and he said, and I was talking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And he said, Peter, we're not even past the sense of safety and security. 
He goes, think about it. You know, we're never going back to 2019. We, for those of us that could work behind our computers and do Zoom calls, sent workers to their deaths. He goes, I'm not just talking healthcare workers. I'm talking about chicken plants and grocery stores. And people are pissed off and they don't trust the system anymore. They don't trust management. The whole relationship is broken. And so when you say the world's depressed, I'm like, I, I've heard that line before, and I, it's almost like a big PTSD. And so if I think about it, how do, we, how do we get people so they're not, like if you can't move past the safety and security, and we just saw a strike last night at some fire at, at uh, Amazon warehouse, you know, the workers stormed the HR complex or the offices. So if there's concern about safety, we're not going to get back to the sense of belonging in in employer employee relationships, right? So it's there's a, a huge complex issue, and if you and because you're in labor relations as am I, if you look at all the organizing campaigns, not all of them, but a lot of them that are going on, they are safety related. So what and you know whether it's a nursing campaign with staffing, whether it's the Chipotle workers up in Maine, if Starbucks, whomever, it look at the headlines there and they sent us to work with not enough people and it made us unsafe. And so we're still deal- dealing with that bottom line of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which I find a fascinating concept because it, it, it ties into everything else. Yeah. Look- I mean, obviously not commenting on any of the uh, companies, but, um, somebody should be doing an interview of you as opposed to an interview of me. You know, that was a fascinating um, explanation or an interview with your friends who talked about Maslow. And I mean, it certainly resonated, your explanation very much resonated with me. And I don't necessarily have an answer of how do you give people hope? You know, Obama ran on hope. Um, and hope is very, very powerful. Um, but you have to have credibility behind hope. There's got to be a plan and not just words. Um, and I think you get a lot of sad. Most people, not all, obviously, most people get satisfaction out of the work. The Gen Zers are saying, I don't want a job. I want a passion. Right. I want well, to work someplace where my passion, whatever the passion is, Okay, change the world. Whatever the passion is, um, um, can be fulfilled. That they share my values, um, and if you find that, and if you find that you have a kindred spirit, and that spirit is continuing to give you skills to advance, give you career paths, and what have you, I think that gives an individual satisfaction. That that gives an individual purpose. But see, okay, so so let's go back for a second because that's where I think the solution that you're looking for until we can overcome that sense of safety, and listeners can't see the but that I talk with my hands, but I'm talking with my hands. But if if we can't overcome that sense of safety and security, that people are still frightened, they're still shell-shocked to use the World War II analogy, then we're not going to move up to that sense of belonging and then Again, back to Maslow, you go up to self-actualization, right? That passion, that self-actualization, you're not going to get past there. So all this stuff that we're talking about, workforce development, you know, this bleak future with artificial intelligence and automation, that's still going to be in that sense of safety and security. And to embrace a solution, you've got to get past that part. Yeah, and, and I think part of security... Um, is feeling that I've got a career path that I can take care of myself, take care of my family, and that I have this sense that I can do better, that I can have a good life, that I can have that part of the American dream, and at the same time pursue my passions. Um, uh, That's part of it. But I think what you're saying is fundamentally much more basic. Mm -hmm. Um, I get that. Um, I don't necessarily have an answer to it, but I'll tell you one thing that we have to do we have to be a lot more careful um, with respect to pronouncements because people rely upon things. 
wear a mask. Don't wear a mask. Wear a mask right. today. Don't wear a mask tomorrow. Get the shot. Um, maybe get the shot. Maybe the shot helps. Get the booster. Maybe the booster doesn't help because we had a different. I mean, it's like, really? You're, you get the sense that nobody is really in control. You know, you get the sense that what the country needs is a good Harry Truman to say the buck stops here. Right. Well, and, you know, in part, that goes back to that sense of security, because if you got the rules changing every day, you know, there I can't look to my leader who's implementing a new policy coming from the CDC when that policy changes every week. Right. So then that's breaking that relationship down. Right. Yeah, very much so. It's a it's a societal issue. And it's not. And by the way, union and non-union both are having to deal with this because the, you know, if you look at what's going on with the unions, they're getting replaced, the traditional unions, by independent unions. So they've got to deal with that as well. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm, well, maybe not obviously considering who I am. I mean, I'm not talking about unions at all. I'm talking about workers. Right. Um, And all organizations, whether you're in a union or whether it's it's, it's union-free, issue-free, um, there's got to be voice mechanisms. They got to be effective. You got to provide these skills. You got to do this workforce development. Um, and quite frankly, unions, especially with proven apprenticeship programs like in construction trades, um, they can provide tremendous value along these lines um, and have for a long time. Um, so, to me, I, I'm not talking about union, non-union at all um, in this context. Um, I, I'm talking about the very soul of America. Uh, America has got to get its swagger back. America has got to be um, hopeful again. America has to be confident again. And one of the ways that we do that is by making sure that we're giving people, at least from a financial security perspective, the ability to make a good living and to do it in a way that perhaps they can pursue their passion. Um, And we need a plan to do that. And we need people to talk about it. And people are not talking about it. Yeah, the, this is, it's such a, a wide-ranging, multifaceted topic because it's, again, union and non-union are, are involved in it. But it's the colleges, the the kids where they're going. And I, I bring this back to that whole conversation about Maslow's because I don't know that we're going to be able to get there until we satisfy that basic level of, of need or feeling of cat, uh, cat- catastrophes happening, right? And right. you just touched on, you know, and I didn't even hear, know about it or really follow it, the whole threat of nuclear war, you know, that's that I guess was last week or a couple of weeks ago. You know, yeah, I mean, Ukraine it's, and Zelensky uh, and mean, Putin. Yeah, but I mean, I lived through that and you right. did. We're right. about the same age. I mean, I'm sure that, um, you know, you had the drills, you know, in school. Yeah. You had to get under the desk <laughs> thinking that somehow if I was under the desk, if the bomb went off, it was going to be okay. Right. Um, never quite understood that. Uh, but as a young kid, you got under the desk, you know. Um, and, yeah, it was scary. Um, but, you know, we still lived our lives. I mean, you know, the put the, the, the Sputnik thing um, was, was scary. Um, and Kennedy said, you know, we got this. We're going to go to the moon. Um, and son of a bitch, we went to the moon. Right. Within six uh, years know, or eight years. Yeah, I mean, that that gives one a sense of hope, satisfaction, and credibility that my leader speaks and my leader has been able to execute on the plan. Um, I mean, I think there was a tremendous pride um, and sense of security as a result of all of that, that we could do that. Um, and I don't know if we, well, we, we don't have that today. And I, obviously, I'm not, I'm not really making a political statement from the standpoint of any particular party. Um, I, I think that this is endemic um, for all leaders at all levels. Um, and I am tired of bashing. You know, we're now in the bashing mode. We get to the last, what, about three weeks to go before the election. I right. can't wait to get home um, in California. Um, and uh, 
mark my ballot by mail and send it in as fast as I can so I don't have to listen to any more of that crap that's out there. You know, people bashing one another. Um, I, I would like to see people talk about the kinds of things that we're talking about here because that connects with real people in their daily lives. And I think that uh, policymakers need to do that uh, and then they need to follow through. I, you know, and this isn't to get into political party per se, but, you know, in any campaign and in any leader, you need to provide a hope for the future. And I don't see too many people doing it. I see um, a lot from both sides, you know, pointing fingers and saying how screwed up America is, regardless of the issue. But it's there's nobody providing, quote, hope. Right. And and frankly, you touched on Obama. He was, I think, the last one that that was really good at it, regardless of his very, policies. Regardless of his policies, we're not talking about the policies. We're not really talking about the man um, as such. But the fact of hope, hope is extremely powerful. Yeah. Um, um, and, you know, vision and hope, uh, these concepts are critically important. Um, and... I, I, I believe in them. And I was talking to somebody this morning um, who unfortunately in a meeting said something that turned me on and he got to listen to a lot of what <laughs> I just talked to you about. And he said, boy, there's a guy with passion, but there's a guy who's trying to make a legacy. Um, and you know, to me, this is my legacy. Um, and however I will be remembered, which probably is not at all, um, it'll be in part because of what it is we're talking about here. Um, and I tell you, I am so blessed uh, to be with Littler. Um, that gives me the opportunity to do the kinds of things that I do. Um, uh, because you talk about uh, teaming up with an organization that lets you go after your passions. Um, man, uh, I have been blessed uh, to be here and to have the flexibility that I have to do the kinds of things that I do. So, so how do we um, make the vision of the Emma Coalition be seen or heard by more people other than doing this labor relations radio podcast? I think that you, um, I have hope that what we're doing with the state chambers and the engagement of the state chambers is one way of doing this. Um, I spoke to somebody yesterday who may very well run for governor. Um, and we talked about this and talking about how this could be incorporated in the person's uh, message to the people. We, we need to get the politicians, the policymakers to understand that this is the ticket to success. We need to get them to understand that this is totally bipartisan. We need to get them to understand that by talking about these kinds of things that matter to people, you begin to touch their lives. Um, and people can see you as a human being with some of the shared interests that they have and tell your story and your success the way I try to tell mine. Um, so it's not so abstract. And have everybody think about their Emma. You know, I hear and I see these polls that Republicans think they have nothing in common with Democrats and vice versa. You know, it's not quite that bad, but it's almost that bad. Right. Um, and I and my retort to that is, cut me a freaking break. You mean to tell me that by party, there's a difference as to whether or not we want our grandchildren to have a better life than we have? Do we, do we have a difference in party to say that we don't want the 21st to be the next American century? Do we, do we have a difference in party to say the individuals that are suffering with respect to opioid um, thinking about suicide and alcohol addiction should have opportunities for not only getting the mental and the uh, other kind of medical help that they need, but to be given hope with a, a pathway to perhaps return to work um, uh, with a skill development. Come on, are we so completely broken in our politics that we don't recognize that we share those very values? I, I refuse think to accept that we are that broken. I refuse to accept it. I think it gets lost in the devil in the details. And that's where 
like we can agree kids should be happy. They should have a bright future. The sun should come up tomorrow. And then, and then the argument breaks down as into, well, the state should take care of that. No, the individual should take care of that. And it's, yeah, that's, it immediately goes south when you start talking about policy. We certainly go south when we start talking about policy. We also go south because we try to get the perfect, which is the enemy of the good. Mm -hmm. Um, We need to show progress. Um, And nothing sells like progress. And that's why um, I'd like to get a steering committee. We're working. We've we've identified it, but I can't talk about it more broadly. The steering committee of these states to really take these leadership positions. You know, it's the old story. Nothing sells like success. Um, And when people show um, that this program has resulted in this um, or resulted in that, when people see that progress is being made, that change is possible, uh, that people can work together, regardless of political party, um, uh, it makes a huge, huge difference. Those are the kinds of things that we have to promote and we have to advertise. uh, We have to cherish. We have to make sure that people talk about this is possible. I mean, this country has done amazing things. Who the hell would have thought that we'd beat the British? Um, who the hell thought that, you know, that the Civil War going on, uh, that somehow we could get out of that? Um, yeah, we are far from a perfect nation. Show me a perfect nation. There is none. Show me a perfect person. There is none. Um, but we have overcome uh, tremendous, tremendous problems. I mean, I think about my parents living through the Depression, World War II. My father didn't go to war because he was working at Todd Shipyard. He repaired submarines. Every time he went to go to the Navy, they said, you can't go because you've got to repair the submarines. Um, when we think about those kinds of things that they went through, um, and during some of it, they couldn't even get a drink because we had prohibition. Um, uh, and, and somehow we got out of it. And think what we did with respect to the end of the Cold War. Think what we're doing now to help the Ukrainians, you know, with the help of a lot of other right, countries. Right. I mean, th- there is good here, and there has to be a reflection in looking at it, and we've got to stop throwing rocks at one another. And I hope that this whole workforce issue is one way of doing it. I think the further down you drive it, the more successes you'll have, state level, local level, you know, getting school boards involved, the, you know, unions involved, teachers unions, but they have to understand the problem. They have to understand the problem. They have to be committed. They have to understand and They have to have a personal interest in why this is going to be successful. Not everybody is motivated by vision. Most people are motivated by the fire of the day. The fire of the day is we don't have a workforce. Right. The fire of the day is we don't have enough workers. The fire of the day is robots are real. The fire of the day that AI is everywhere. The fire of the day is that all workforces are changing. That is the fire of the day. And so let's deal with the fire of the day. Yeah. Crisis is a terrible thing to waste. That That is probably a good ending note because we're running up about on an hour. Um, I'm going to include the... The people actually listen to us for a whole uh, hour. You know, sometimes, and yeah. <laughs> I got to tell you, if you're still on this thing, you got to get a life, man. I mean, uh, it's, whole you know, I try to, I it's try crazy. to time these, um, when I'm talking alone, I stay at a half hour, but when I've got a guest who's interesting, like yourself, I'll, I'll go an hour because it's, I, I plan these for commute times. If you're a commuter, you're riding a train, driving in the car, sitting in traffic. It's, it's good to talk about things like that. That's why I don't do listens, My wife listens to them when she's out walking. Yeah, there you go. It's, you know, walk on the beach or in the park or whatever. It's something, yeah, yeah, something yeah, to yeah, do. Yeah. So. Yeah. You imagine taking a slow scroll and listening to me. <laughs> Holy shit. It, oh, I, I, I cursed. I'm sorry. Uh, the the FCC right. is going to come after me. Um, <laughs> you pull a plug out of your ears and say, man, I can't listen to that guy. Yeah. No, that's, that's good. Anyway, Michael Latito, as always, I appreciate you coming on Labor Relations Radio. I enjoy the conversations. I don't have the answers, but I like picking people's brains, and, and yours is a fascinating one to pick. Well, you're very kind, Peter. Thank you, and thank your audience. Uh, I appreciate the time. It's, uh, it's it's certainly a hell of a lot more effective talking to you and your listeners than talking to myself in a closet. Uh, <laughs> there you so, go. <laughs> so I sure as hell appreciate the opportunity. I do that all the time, by the way. So, <laughs> All right. 
Uh, Thank you, sir. Stay well, my friends. Stay well, audience. Have hope. Um, We can do this. That's right. Thank you, sir. See you. Bye-bye. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. So that was Michael Letito talking about the Emma Coalition and some of the many challenges that we face as a nation and our workplaces face. In any case, I always have a fascinating conversation with him. He's a pleasure to talk to. I'm going to leave the links to the ML Coalition as well as some of the other uh, related topics under the audio portion of this episode of Labor Relations Radio. If you'd like, please check them out. Check out the Emma Coalition and feel free to comment under the audio portion of this episode. Reach out on Twitter at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Or give us a call at 1-888-668-6466. Thanks for listening. to Labor Relations Radio. Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoyed Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.